welcome back to the Yellow Box Podcast. This week, we are joined by community pastor Ian Simpkins as we begin a brand new series, Oh Brother. For more information, please visit us at www.communitychristian.org. And remember, you can always find us on Sundays at the Yellow Box at 9.30 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 5 p.m. We hope to see you there. Good morning, everyone. How are you feeling? That's like the danciest bumper we've ever had. I saw people in the back really fighting the urge to fist bump a little bit. Um, my name is Ian, and uh, I'm thrilled to be here, thrilled that you're here. Uh, as Sherry mentioned, we are beginning a brand new series called Oh Brother. So I want to ask, first off, who in the room has a sibling? Anyone? Okay, a number of people. If you've been here for any length of time, you know that I have approximately 700 siblings, uh, <laughs> give or take. But I'm, I'm really curious, though, how many of you, like me, are the best sibling, a.k.a. the eldest. Any eldest in the room? <laughs> okay, with the groaning, come on. That's, we, we know it to be true. I'm just kidding. But uh, my brother and I are great friends now, but it, it hasn't always been that way. In fact, I, I remember uh, when I was caught um, trading all of my nickels for my brother's dimes. And the way that I was able to successfully do that is I told him, Nickels are way bigger. They're definitely worth more. And he was like, okay, all right, there you go. And uh, when my mom told him the truth, that was a riff that took a while to repair. (laughs) But uh, a lot of us have different kinds of relationships with our siblings. But today, uh, we're diving into the book of James. And James was the half-brother of Jesus. So talk about pressure, right? Can you imagine having Jesus as your older brother? Like how many times did he have to hear why can't you be more like your brother? Like, what would his response, I mean, mom, he's the Messiah, right? Like, what an impossible sibling to live up to, Jesus as his older brother. But we all know that, like, younger siblings love to follow around their older siblings, right? That's what younger siblings do. They follow where their older sibling goes. I'll bet one time James almost drowned, did you just get that up there? Did you? <laughs> Essentially, what we want to do, though, today is dive into this book uh, called James, written by James, someone who uh, later became a Christ follower after the resurrection, which I think is a really, really important detail. Because what would your sibling have to say to convince you that he or she was God? Like, what would that conversation look like? And so James... The brother of Jesus lived a lot of life with him and as a response wrote this book. A book, by the way, that is known for how practical it is. I think there is so much insight to be learned from the guy who grew up with Jesus. And uh, I want to challenge you before we dive into, if you've never signed up for our Bible reading plan, this is the perfect series to do it. You can go to the website here, and uh, every day during the week, we'll send you questions and readings and ways to engage more deeply. If you've not tried this yet, I can't encourage enough that you do, because this will be the perfect series to do that. We're going to spend the next five weeks in this book learning some of the wisdom that James has for us. So a little bit of context. Uh, James is writing this letter to Christ followers who have been scattered all over the place. And the reason that they're scattered is not because they're like on vacation. They're scattered because they've been facing uh, extreme persecution. Things are not going all that well for many Christ followers in this region. 
So James is writing to this dispersed church as a way to help give them a bigger picture of what's happening to them in the moment so that they continue to grow and mature in their faith. And I don't know if any of you can relate to that, but sometimes don't we find ourselves in the midst of difficult circumstances, of things that weigh down on us. And I believe James' purpose then has a lot of purpose for us now to give us a bigger perspective, a bigger picture and vision of what's really going on so that we continue to grow and mature in our faith. Now that's a good goal, I think, right? Continue to grow and mature in your faith. But James also knows that there are things that can trip us up. There are pitfalls, there are snares, there are things that can distract us from actually growing into fullness, into the person that God actually intends for us to become. So for the next five weeks, we're going to look at five of these pitfalls. And so today, I want to talk about everyone's favorite topic, uh, temptation, right? Yeah, ooze across the crowd. How many of you here are utterly immune to temptation? Anyone? Okay, no hands, hopefully, right. Temptation is one of those things that regardless of what that specific thing is, we've all felt the weight of it. Maybe you can relate to uh, the great Oscar Wilde who said this, uh, I can resist anything except temptation. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty inspiring stuff right there. Temptation is something that we all have felt and continue to feel in some way, shape, or form. So let's dive into the book of James and uh, see what wisdom he has for us. We'll start in verse 13. It says, that No one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So he wants to kind of set the record straight for us. When we're talking about temptation, this is the way that we don't want to talk about it. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed. I want you to hold on to those words, lured and enticed. Enticed is actually a hunting word to describe what we do to a fish. So lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So, he talks about this idea of being lured and enticed, right? When it, when it comes to temptation, every single one of us is being lured and enticed, kind of like this. Now, Dory, I want you to tell me, do you see anything? I see a... I see a light. A light? Yeah, over there. What is it? It's so pretty. I, I'm feeling happy, which is a big deal for me. I want to touch it. Oh. Ooh. Hey, come back. <laughs> come on back here. I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. I'm going to get I'm you. I'm going to swim with you. I'm going to get you. I'm going to be your best friend. Good feelings gone. <laughs> My favorite line is, oh, good feelings gone, right? <laughs> but that's what temptation does. Temptation lures and entices us 
away from someone or something. I remember the first time that I went fishing, it was with my Uncle Kevin, and I remember him walking us through uh, how one fishes. So I had my little, like, Snoopy fishing rod, and uh, he showed me the hook, and I was like, well, fish is never going to fall for that, right? He's like, no, you make it appealing by putting a gross worm on it. And I was like, I don't understand how that works. A fish is never going to fall for that. And then the first 10 minutes, we both had caught fish. And we're thinking, well, they're, never gonna, they're not going to fall for that again. And 10 minutes later, I caught another fish. And I remember thinking, why do the fish continue to fall for the lure? And I was thinking about that experience this week. And isn't that sometimes true of us? We fall for the lure even and especially when we know it's a trap. We know it doesn't actually lead to health and fullness and life and joy and, and identity. I think for a lot of us, Maybe temptation feels like a lure, but for many of us, perhaps it feels a little bit more like this. Dear temptation, I suppose you've already won. Something tells me that you have. After all, you've tempted me into writing this letter, haven't you? So maybe this is pointless. Maybe it's not. Truth be told, I've never cared much for you. It's not a stretch to say that I hate you. I mean, who do you think you are? Who do I think you are? Both good questions, and right now I feel so alone and so helpless that I'm actually reaching out to you for answers. It's just become so easy giving in to you that I hardly even feel like it's me doing it anymore. Like I'm just on autopilot or something, and I'm completely unaware of who's actually in control. So I repeat the cycle over and over again, and I do the one thing I don't want to do, and I don't understand why. How is it that you are so strong and I am so weak? Why can't I learn to recognize you and stay away? You'd think I'd learn my lesson, but I don't. I keep on taking the bait and I keep getting hooked, and every time once you've got me, you drop me so hard it hurts. It really hurts. Why do you do this to me? What do you gain from my loss? And what do you want from me? Can anyone relate to that feeling? The idea, the idea of being baited, of being hooked over and over and over again. In fact, I find a lot of comfort that people like the Apostle Paul wrote things as blunt as, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I actually want to do. Has anyone ever felt that way before on the other side of temptation? You, you realize again that you were lured, you were enticed away from life, meaning, purpose, joy, happiness. And yet so many of us, I think, feel that same way. It's one thing to laugh at a cartoon. It's another thing entirely to realize that deep down, we know what it feels like to be enticed, to be lured. So I want to unpack a couple of ideas in particular about this, this thought behind temptation and then hopefully give a, a couple of practical suggestions. So the first thing that I think we need to recognize is that someone is fishing for you. Someone is fishing for you, for me. James is pretty straightforward about this. Where there's temptation, there's a tempter. Where there's temptation, there's 
a tempter. And it's not just some sort of like passive enemy that's like waiting for us to trip to laugh at us when we fall. No, scripture tells us that he prowls around. He intentionally looks for opportunities to entice us, to, to draw us away from where we are supposed to be. There is a tempter who's trying to lure us away, waiting for every opportunity. Now, James said something really important here in verse 13. He says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So we gotta make that really clear, because I I think sometimes the tendency that when we fall into these things, when we get ensnared in whatever that thing is that tempts us, we say, well, I can't help it, God just made me that way, right? That that's what James wants to kind of go after here. Don't, don't say God is tempting you because that's not who God is. That's not part of his character. But he goes on, verse 14, and says this. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, the word enticed there is actually a hunting term used to describe what we do to a fish, to lure it away. It actually is maybe a lot like this. When we go fishing, right, of course, we all have our, uh, our Moana uh, fishing rod, right? And uh, it was the cheapest one at Meyer. I can't, don't judge me, please. Um, but when you look at like a, like a hook, right, most of us know like, okay, well, that's not, that's just not all that appealing, right? So we, you, you got to dress it up a little bit, right? Like even fish know, well, the, okay, the hook's not, that's not ideal. So I, I did bring some worms with, um, here we go. It's uh, of the gummy variety. And uh, so, of course, you want to... I'm so scared to play with a hook on stage in front of you right now. So we, we hook on... Oh, my gosh. I'm going to cut myself. Um, so here we go. And, uh, and that's kind of how it's done, right? That's... Who's interested? Who wants this? Anyone? Oh, you know you do. It smells delicious. I'm telling you. Right? So this is kind of the picture. This is the idea. The enemy is saying, huh? Don't you? Doesn't it look good? It's two different flavors in one. What, what's not to like, right? Now, sometimes we actually are able to resist the temptation, right? We recognize it for what it is, and we say, I'm not interested. And so, uh, like, what do you think the enemy does? The enemy just gives up? No, of course not. The enemy doesn't give up. Like, okay, so you're not, you're not feeling... Uh, you're not feeling gummy worms today um how about how about this how about uh how about a ten dollar bill huh ten dollar bill that's oh there's ooze in the crowd let's see i just hooked this on here i don't know if that's legal to do with money or not but okay how about now Ooh. what do you want you want it come on it's right here it is come on some of you are about to <laughs> rush the stage right now. Come on. Here it is. Yeah, this is, I mean, even think about what you're doing here this morning, right? You don't have to be here. You, you could be out making more of this. You, you could be making more money. And, and this, maybe for some of us, is th- this is what entices us. Maybe it isn't quite this obvious, right? But this is what the enemy does, though. This, this will bring you security. This will bring you happiness. This will bring you joy. Just a little bit more of that and your cares will go away. Has anyone ever felt somewhere in the back of the brain like that actually is true? But to be honest, I don't even think that this is true. I don't think this is the full picture, right? Yes, there is an enemy. Yes, he's luring us. Yes, he's enticing us. But like, you know, we grew up in Chicagoland, right? I don't, I don't think it's just... I don't think it's just one lure. I don't think it's just one thing. Growing up here or living here, it, it kind of feels a little more like, like this, doesn't it? 
Is this like a better? Does anyone resonate with this? That it seems like everywhere we look, something is yelling for our attention. Something is trying to lure us. Does this resonate with anyone this morning? That no matter where I go, no matter where I am, no matter what I do, there's something shouting for my attention, trying to lure and entice me away from the places that I know I'm supposed to be. Which brings me to point number two. Point number two is this. There are different kinds of bait. There are different kinds of bait. What lures you may not lure me. So what is it? What is it that entices you, that lures you? Maybe for you it's to, to love and be loved. And you would do anything to make that a reality. Maybe it's success. Maybe it's status of some kind. And you will, you'll cut a corner here. You'll throw an elbow there. You'll, you'll do whatever it takes to be successful in your own eyes. Maybe it's a matter of security, right? If you have enough in the savings account, if you have a big enough house, a nice enough car, whatever it is, know what entices you because what lures you may not lure someone else. Maybe it's something more abstract. Maybe it's influence. Maybe for you, when you're lying awake at night, the thing that consumes your mind is if I could just have a bigger platform, more influence. Maybe, honestly, it's purpose and meaning. That the thing that preoccupies your thought life, maybe you've never said it to a soul, but the question is, what what is the purpose of my life? What does it look like to be a person of meaning? My point is this. There is a very real enemy who wants nothing more than to break up our marriages, right? To divide our families, to get us bickering and fighting about things that ultimately don't matter all that much. Lures are obvious to us, but what's less obvious are the things that distract us. The things that pull us away from loving each other well, from being on mission to helping people find their way back to a God who loves them, who sees them, who knows them, and calls them beloved. And the truth is, every moment of every day, there's an enemy who's trying to lure us, trying to entice us, trying to distract us. If, if we understand that you use different kinds of bait to catch different kinds of fish, how much more so does the enemy understand that about us? The enemy's not an idiot. He knows the tactics to employ, which brings me to point number three, that maturity means resisting the bait. It means resisting the bait. It means that at the point of temptation, we have a choice to make. I think scholar N.T. Wright put it brilliantly. He said, none of us starts off with a pure internal kit of impulses, hopes, and fears. The challenge is to take the self you find within and to choose wisely which impulses and desires to follow and which ones to resist. It kind of made me think of this. When I was um, in high school, my family moved from one home to another home, and it was, it was still in the same town, but when we would come home from church, there was a particular intersection where turning left went to my old home, and turning right went to my new home. And uh, I don't know about you, have you ever like just gone on autopilot driving, and you like end up in your driveway somehow, and your first thought is, how did I get here? And whatever, <laughs> that terrifying moment... Well, that happened to me. I was coming home from an event late at night, 
And not paying attention, sort of autopilot, I came to the intersection. I turned left and drove to the house that I used to live in. Now, it was late at night, and so I pulled up into this driveway, and I had that light bulb like, "Uh uh-oh, you're in the wrong place. And I look up, and the whole family is like gathered at the window, wondering what this man is doing in their driveway. And I sort of like, oh, I'm so sorry. And I backed out really quickly and drove home. I think temptation is a lot like that. We, we come to intersections, and I can choose. We can choose to either go left, or we can say, no, I don't, I don't live there anymore. I live here now. That's where I live. That's where life and purpose and identity is found. Now, I'll be honest, it took me a few weeks after we moved to get used to that. Like, <laughs> I don't know if this is embarrassing to admit or not, but I would come to the intersection, and I would regularly have to say, okay, shh. Which way do I go? That's not my house. That's my house. Okay, got it. But guess what happened over time? Over time, it became easier to remember which way to turn. It became easier to remember where my home actually was. And I believe that we're wired in a very similar way. Yeah, there are things going on in our life. There are temptations that are really enticing, really attractive. And for the first couple of times, maybe the first couple of months, maybe even the first couple of years, you're going to come to that intersection and it's going to be like a knockdown, drag out fight of the will, right? But if we are faithful in those moments to say, no, no, I don't, I don't live there anymore. I live there. To turn right instead of left, we get stronger. It becomes easier. And each time we come to that fork, we build that muscle up a little bit more. So how do we actually resist the bait? How do we resist the bait? I I don't think we can resist it if we don't know what it is, first off. What entices you? What lures you? And regardless of how you answer that question, I think the answer is twofold. The first, we need to choose God's good for us. We need to choose God's good for us. James puts it this way in verse 16. He says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. He's saying, Do not forget that God is not just some angry bearded man in the sky. He's a father who loves to give good gifts. I think we get it twisted when we start to believe that God's trying to keep me from having fun, that he's trying to keep me from true life. No, no, no. The point is that no one knows us better than the one who made us. And he's saying, man, you keep going left, and that's not where you live anymore. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. We can choose God's best, but there's always going to be counterfeits. That's, that's really what temptation is. It's a twisting of that which was originally good and right. There's always going to be counterfeits, things that aren't the real deal. I, w- I was thinking about this a couple weeks ago. I, uh, my family and I flew out to Vegas to do a wedding. And um, I went, we went a couple days early just to sort of see some landscape. We'd never seen the Grand Canyon before. We'd never seen uh, Bryce Canyon or Zion National Park. So we, we got there a little, uh, a little early and... And kind of just went on a family road trip. And it was, I don't know if you guys have been to the Grand Canyon before. Neither of us had been. And it was amazing. I kind of thought that it would like un- underperform. Like it just was, you know, the, you can't live up to the hype. It absolutely does. And so like every turn, we're just like, what? Like we're getting out of the car every 10 minutes to take photos. And they never do it justice. But it was just, it was awe-inspiring. And then we wrap up the trip in Vegas. And we're staying at a hotel 
in Vegas. And at 11 o'clock at night, I'm pushing my little boy through a casino in Vegas. Don't judge me. And we had just come from the Grand Canyon. And as I'm kind of pushing him through this like smoke-filled lobby, it's just like bells and whistles and lights. And I had this thought, there will always be counterfeits. There will always be things, flashing lights, images. There's always going to be stuff trying to lure and entice us. But because we just came from the real thing. And those bells and whistles couldn't hold a candle. Didn't, didn't come close. And I think the more that we experience the goodness of God in our lives, the more silly these counterfeits begin to look. You begin to see them for what they really are. You're like, oh, that's just, I, re- I remember that really appealing to me. That's just bells and whistles. That's just Vegas. That's just smoke and mirrors. Man, but this, while it's not always easy, is so much better. And, and please hear me in this. this whole, the whole point of this isn't so that we like, hunker down and like grit more willpower, right? Oh, I just need to be better at resisting temptation and choosing God's best for us. Choosing God's best, choosing what he has in mind for us begins first by being honest about our own struggle because here's the secret, God already knows. Like when we confess things to God, we're not like letting him in on something he didn't know about. So it begins first by saying, God, I'm, I'm really struggling in this area. This is continuing to entice me. I continue to make the same mistakes here. And God says, my dearly beloved children, I know I will give you strength. I'll give you courage. I'll give you an expanded vision of what's really going on here. We can be honest with God because he already knows. Now, this is easier said than done, obviously, so that brings me to point number two, and that is that we need to choose accountability. We need to choose accountability. We, we are hardwired for connection. We are hardwired for community, to do life together. We were not built to do this thing alone, period. And in fact, the science agrees with that. I think it's fascinating. I found this out this week, that self-regulation, our, our strength uh, to make the right choices, is a finite resource, in fact, self-regulation is really a, uh, it's a battle between two parts of the brain. Um, first, you have the frontal gyrus, which is just fun to say, and that's where like, the brain's bouncer lives. The frontal gyrus is like, hold on, let's think about this, let's make good decisions. That's always in constant battle with the nucleus incumbens, and that's where the good times roll, right? And so these two parts of the brain are in constant communication, and that's how we self-regulate. That's how we actually make wise choices. And behavioral scientists and neuroscientists are finding that that's a finite resource in the same way that we can only do so many push-ups before we collapse on the ground. For me, it's a 1,000, but for you, it might be less. Um, (laughs) I'm kidding, obviously, obviously. Uh, (laughs) But here's the thing about physical fatigue, though. That's obvious to us, right? If you were to do push-ups until you couldn't do push-ups anymore, you'd eventually collapse on the floor. That would be obvious. What's less obvious is when this part of our brain becomes fatigued, when we've used up that finite resource, which is why we need each other. It's why we are hardwired. We are built for life together. Life is lived better in circles than in rows because we look each other in the eye and we don't always have the answers. Oftentimes we don't have any. But we say, man, you are not alone. I am with you in this. And we pick each other up 
and we remind each other of what's really important. This, I think, is best done in what we call a small group. And if you're not in a small group, I cannot encourage you enough to join one. We made it really, really easy, actually. You can just text the word SGINFO to 313131. You can do it right now. And someone from our small group team will get back to you this week. If you've never made the decision, or you did, but you, you bailed or you lost touch, get in a small group. Because that, I believe, is where real life change happens. That's where we like get into the weeds. That's where we actually live life together and we remind each other that we're not alone on this road. And God didn't wire us that way. Because when we mess up, we don't give up. We tracking? In the context of community, we remind each other just because you messed up doesn't mean you have to give up, that we dust ourselves off because there is a God who loves us endlessly. And even in the midst of our pain and struggle, it says, you are my dearly beloved son, my dearly beloved daughter. Now, ultimately, we can trust Jesus with these struggles because he himself struggled. He himself felt the weight of temptation. I love what the author of Hebrews says here. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. He's saying this isn't some high priest that's just off on some holy mountain that has no idea what it's like to be us. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. The beauty of the gospel is that God didn't simply give a set of rules or principles or laws. He gave himself. So we can be honest about what lures us. We can be honest about what entices us. We can trust those things to God because he understands. I want to close with this quote from a man named C.S. Lewis. And it's a, it's a long quote, but I, I think it communicates this idea really, really powerfully. Here's, here's what he said. He said, no man knows how bad he is till he's tried very hard to be good. It's a silly idea that's current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of an army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. And here's how he concludes. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist. Evil, sin, darkness did its very worst to Jesus, and he was able to exhaust its force, to withstand. We do not worship a God who is unsympathetic. In fact, I would say quite the opposite. Scripture is filled with stories of people being really, really honest, which means that we can be too. We don't have to hide that part of our life or pretend things are better than they are. Scripture is filled with men and women who say, God, I desperately need your help. I cannot do it on my own. In fact, I would argue that's the point. And Jesus comes alongside each of us and walks with us. He sees us, 
He knows us fully and he calls us beloved. Let's pray. God, thank you that you love us in a way that I think will forever baffle me. God, it seems that every day I'm reminded of a different way that you have provided for us. You've shown yourself to us. God, I know that in a room this size, there are a lot of battles being fought. There are a lot of things that entice us. There are a lot of things that want to lure us away from your best for us, God. But give us the strength to see them for what they are, to be honest about our struggle, and to ask you for help. God, thank you that your word tells us that you never leave us. You never forsake us. Help us to see with new eyes what's really going on and to choose your best for us, God. We thank you. We love you. And we pray all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.